I will keep fighting to bring peace to humans and robots. This is Mega Bluster. I'm Stefan, and this is part 7 of our very, very long look at the Mega Man franchise. This time around, Mega Man 4. Released in Japan as Rokuman Yon, Aratanaru Yabo, which translates to Rockman 4, A New Evil Ambition. In December 1991 for the Nintendo Family Computer, and in the United States in January 1992 for the Nintendo Entertainment System. With the exception of its strange, semi-official, DOS-based offshoot, the Mega Man series to date had followed a logical progression. A primal first release was polished into a refined sequel, which was then expanded into an ambitious third entry. These first three games stand as one of the Nintendo Entertainment System's great trilogies, alongside Nintendo's Mario and Konami's Castlevania. By the end of 1991, both of those series had released new entries on the Super Famicom, known in the West as the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Super Mario World is an expansive, exploratory refinement of the athletic and energizing formula Nintendo had established on the NES whereas Super Castlevania IV stands as a technical showcase for the system's updated capabilities. With its peers having thrown down the gauntlet on 16-bit systems, Capcom responded by making another Mega Man game for the Nintendo Entertainment System. And yet, as I think about Mega Man 4, I find myself fascinated by what it says about Capcom and the video game industry at the time of its release. To understand Mega Man 4, we have to understand what video games were in 1991, and how the changes that we now regard as inevitable were at the time fraught with uncertainty. In 1990, no market-leading video game company had ever successfully navigated a generational upgrade. This statement sounds more damning than it really is, as there had only been three quote-unquote generations of home video game consoles, insofar as we're able to actually categorize any consoles into discrete generations. Uh, Atari's collapse and reorganization destroyed any chance of the 7800 establishing a beachhead against the NES in the United States. And while Sega was seeing early success with the Japanese Mega Drive, uh, rebranded as the Sega Genesis for its U.S. release, its predecessor, the Master System, had never been a market leader in either Japan or the United States, only in Brazil and some parts of Europe. Uh, in 1991, Nintendo was attempting to break new ground by keeping a streak alive. The introduction of the Super Nintendo was a doubly complex venture because its predecessor was in a very different place in each of its primary markets. Whereas sales of the family computer had begun to taper off in Japan in the face of competition from both the Mega Drive and NEC's PC engine, sales of the NES remained strong in the United States. Nintendo chose to launch its new 16-bit system in phases that reflected these differing stages of market development. The Super Famicom released in Japan in November 1990, whereas the Super Nintendo came to the United States in August 1991. 
In Japan, the console was greeted with enthusiasm. But the competitive situation in the U.S. was much more fraught, as Sega had struck gold with an aggressive marketing campaign centered around its new mascot character, Sonic the Hedgehog. In addition, American consumers were far more budget-conscious at that point in time due to an economic recession. While prospects were rosy in Japan for Nintendo's new console, things looked much less certain across the Pacific, and each major production house had to decide when would be the right time to make the jump to a new generation of hardware. While Konami and Squaresoft moved quickly to develop new entries in their flagship franchises for the Super Nintendo, Capcom adopted a much more conservative posture. Capcom's first Super Famicom release was December 1990's version of Final Fight, a notoriously compromised port of a hit arcade game that illustrated the struggles the company was having with Nintendo's new hardware. I don't have information on what was happening inside of Capcom at that time, but its releases for the period of 1990 and 1991 show a split focus between 8-bit home consoles and more powerful arcade hardware. The example of Final Fight on the Super Nintendo may have cautioned the company's leadership to not leap fully into the new generation until it had time to reorient its development resources to doing it well, or until the potential payoff for doing so became too great to ignore, as it would very, very soon thanks to another 1991 arcade release. So, we can infer that Capcom was not fully ready to leap into the 16-bit generation at a technical level, and we have established in previous episodes that both Mega Man 2 and Mega Man 3 were produced under difficult circumstances without significant time or budgetary resources. And we've established that both Mega Man 2 and Mega Man 3 sold more than 1 million units each. Viewed in this context, Capcom's decision to move ahead with Mega Man 4 on the Nintendo Entertainment System makes complete sense. Capcom seems to have been looking to achieve a certain level of harmony when assembling the team for Mega Man 4. The most important newcomer on the project was director Yoshinori Takanaka, who had worked as the primary game designer on 1989's smash hit DuckTales, alongside designer Keiji Inafune. The partnership between Takanaka and Inafune would prove enduring and the pair would work together on several subsequent Mega Man games over the next few years. Another important addition to the team was Hayato Kaji, a designer who would not only work on the subsequent mainline Mega Man games, but also on the spin-off series Mega Man X, Mega Man Legends, and Mega Man Battle Network. Kaji remains at Capcom to this day, having recently served as Deputy General Manager on the remakes of Resident Evil 2, and Resident Evil 3. The final major addition to the team was Kazunori Tazaki, another artist who would go on to become part of Capcom's Clover Studios in the early 2000s, before spinning out of the company and onto a different path that we will examine in detail much, much later. 
Inafune has described a smooth production in interviews since the game's release. And the final product is certainly far more polished than its predecessor in many respects. And yet in spite of that polish, Mega Man 4 slides off the brain like water off a duck's back. It is the rare game that manages the tricky balancing act of being both polished to a mirror sheen and being almost entirely forgettable. A chaotic production does not necessarily result in a bad game. And a smooth production does not necessarily result in a good game. Renaissance? Cuckoo Clock. Mega Man 4 changes its predecessor's formula by increasing its production values, introducing new characters and narrative threads to continue to expand its anime-style world, and adding a controversial, somewhat superfluous new mechanic. Presentation in Mega Man 4 is a substantial step up from its predecessors. Its makers clearly viewed it as an opportunity to reset the series following the rushed production of Mega Man 3, and included both a pre-title cutscene explaining the story of the previous three entries in the series, and a new theoretically post-Wily threat in the form of token Russian villain, Dr. Cossack. As was the style at the time, Cossack had constructed eight robot masters of his own, including Drill Man, Dive Man, Dust Man, Ring Man, Bright Man, Skull Man, Toad Man, and Pharaoh Man. That's Pharaoh with a PH, not an F. Uh, Pharaoh Man is Egyptian, not a grain. Dr. Cossack seized control of eight unnamed cities with this motley crew of robot masters, leaving Mega Man once again as society's only hope. The narrative takes a couple of turns, none of which are surprising, and all of which lean into the series' increasing focus on melodrama. Secret kidnapped daughters, shocking resurrections, shifting alliances. The story does push up against what was possible in an action game on the aging NES hardware, and reflects the growing ambition of the team as it stabilized and became more confident. But viewed as a whole, even in its time, the story can't help but come off as silly. The team's ambition also extended to the game's new key mechanic, the Mega Buster, justified narratively as an improved arm cannon necessary to equip Mega Man for battle with the likes of Pharaoh Man and friends. The Mega Buster allowed Mega Man to build up energy for a few seconds and fire one large shot from his arm in roughly the same time it would take him to fire three normal shots. The Mega Buster provides an interesting insight into the team's understanding of the games they were making. As I stated in my Mega Man 3 episode, all meaningful innovation in the Mega Man franchise is ultimately based on changes in player movement, with the slide being the earliest example of a new mechanic fundamentally altering moment-to-moment -moment player decisions. This is a thesis that I intend to continue to develop over the course of this podcast, and Mega Man 4 reinforces it, as the Mega Buster proves to be ultimately meaningless in the context of the series. Now, the concept of a charged shot is neither original nor inherently bad, but as executed in Mega Man 4, it fails to meaningfully affect any choices the player has to make in the course of regular gameplay. There is never an incentive not to be charging, 
meaning that far from affecting the player's experience, the Mega Buster simply encourages them to hold down the B button at all times. No challenge is easier to overcome without the Mega Buster. There's no penalty for using it except for having to hear the sound of it charging. It's not a meaningful innovation, merely a flashy, and in this case quite literally flashy. It was just something new, something the team could point to as evidence of innovation, and something that could be sold to consumers who by this point were already looking ahead to 16-bit systems and wondering when the team at Capcom would catch up to them. The inclusion and emphasis on the Mega Buster leaves us to wonder the degree to which anyone at Capcom really knew what Mega Man was evolving into by 1991. Mega Man 3 had transformed the character from a video game avatar to a company mascot, and the urgent need to get another entry out the door superseded the need to examine substantially what Mega Man was going to be for the first half of the 1990s. Again, while Nintendo was interrogating and refining the nature of its Mario and Zelda franchises, and Konami was searching for ways to expand the scope of its Castlevania series, Mega Man was bolting underbaked mechanics onto an existing cash cow milking machine. Once again, we see that Capcom's primary focus with the series was not being on the bleeding edge of quality, but value, a reasonable degree of quality, at a relatively low production cost. That the game remains a relatively pleasant experience is a testament to the sturdiness of the series' foundations. But in the absence of a step forward, it's hard to see Mega Man 4 as much more than an expansion pack, and an add-on to a successful series, but not in and of itself important to its evolution. While the series' relatively low production costs likely ensured that Mega Man 4 was successful, the fact that there would be four more games in the franchise released before the end of 1992 certainly indicates that Capcom was happy with the returns it was seeing. There seems to be little evidence to suggest that it achieved sales comparable to those of its two immediate predecessors. Capcom has never released sales figures for Mega Man 4, but I estimate that somewhere between 500,000 and 750,000 units were sold worldwide during its lifetime. Commendable numbers, especially for a late NES release, but not a blockbuster. And that would be the theme for the remainder of the franchise's life on 8-bit Nintendo consoles. Steady moneymakers, critically well-received, but unspectacular in execution or commercial appeal. The world was moving on, and Capcom was in no hurry to keep up. At least, not with Mega Man. Because in 1991, Capcom 2 was moving on and establishing where its real money was going to be made going forward. Mega Man was a friendly franchise mascot, a smiling representative of the corporate brand. But for Capcom, he was no longer where the money was. Thank you for listening to Part 7 of Mega Bluster, our very long interrogation of the Mega Man franchise. Music from this episode was sourced from ocremix.org in compliance with that site's content policy. You can find credits and links to the original compositions in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or the podcatcher of your choice. And if you didn't, I promise the next one will be better. I really am working on this. If you have any feedback to help make these episodes better, or if I missed something, 
you can reach out to me at clay at guilelessgamer.com. This and other social links are also in the show notes. How long will I keep fighting? How long will my pain last? Maybe only the X-Buster on my hand knows for sure.